Welcome to Miked Up Sports, the show that gives people in sports an unfiltered platform to share their stories. If you want to help us tell more stories, check us out at patreon.com slash television, paypal.me slash television, or on Cash App at TSB Television. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Peden, and welcome to another edition of Miked Up Sports, the show that goes in-depth with the people who build our sports community. On our past shows, we would tape and open, and I would come up with some catchy, witty intro, but let's face it, my creativity only goes so far. And my guest this evening doesn't need any fancy introduction with the body of work he has done for the Gibson Foundation and for youth around the Twin Cities. He is Donnell Gibson. You may have seen him on the sidelines at Como Park for the boys team. Donnell, thanks for stopping by. I appreciate it. Thank you. Now, your path around basketball is not the usual one compared to most athletes I've spoke with, but you, know, you did have an itch for it and you were a standout player at Johnson. So, do you remember the first time you got an itch to play the game of basketball? Yeah, um, I remember being young and um, my brother, my oldest brother is five years older than me and he would always leave and I just felt kind of detached, never knew what he did. And um, I remember hearing this rhythm because I was really, all kids are, for me, all kids are into music. I just remember hearing this rhythm and I went outside and I was watching them dribble the ball and I was just super curious. Was super it the rhythm curious. of the basketball? Yes, okay, yes. so you thought it was a beat yes. and it was just his, it was his handles. Yeah. So you can really say your brother's handles got you into the yeah, sport. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I wanted to be somewhat a mirror of what my older brother was to me. Um, to me growing up, he actually was the epitome of somebody's trying to make things happen in their community. Um, most people where I'm from uh, are used to w what's happening in the street. And for me, basketball was his outlet, and I figured out a way to make it my outlet as well. So. And you grew up in Chicago, if I'm correct, and then well, came up here? Yeah, well, I was born in Chicago, and then I pretty much grew up in um, St. Paul. Okay, so you moved here at an early age. Yes, yes. And so how did basketball give you that outlet you know, in a place where, as you said, sometimes folks get caught up in other stuff? Yeah, so um, it's funny you asked me that. I, uh, all my life I wanted to be an actor. And I'll explain to you why. I had um, really low self-esteem. Um, I was kind of somewhat ashamed of where I came from. Not what I came from, but the things I was seeing. And I figured there was no success in it. So I used to always walk by the mirror and I would try to play roles of people on TV to try to be someone else because I couldn't be myself. And I got a taste of being able to be on a basketball court and I was able to express myself. I could be me. Um, the days that I felt like I wanted to be super selfish, I could be selfish on the court. If I felt like someone needed me more than I needed myself, I can assist the ball, you know, or if I wanted to stop people from, you know, hurting me, scoring baskets on me, you know, I, my way of, of putting it, I could stick defense really tough. So basketball gave me an outlet to like truly expressly who I am. So an actor was your profession. Did you have any idols? in the realm of entertainment or acting? Um, yeah, uh, Denzel, Will Smith, um, particularly Will Smith because he's able to take a film and can pretty much play the whole role and make the movie by himself without anyone else. And I feel like that level of creati creativity takes a lot, you know, and I, I always admire that for someone. To me, he made the show Fresh Prince of Bel-Air which happened kind of by accident. So you probably know the story of how the show came to be or what led to it. And then Independence Day and Denzel Absolutely. Washington, of course, Training Day and a lot of his other films, American Gangster brings a lot of gravitas. So those are a couple of good choices. Yeah. Now on the basketball court, who was your idol, whether it was family members or players you watched growing up, who was the player you wanted to be like the most? Um. Well, I didn't want to, I, I idolized Michael Jordan just because he was from Chicago. I was from Chicago. He changed the game. And um, particularly because um, I'm always rooting for the underdog. And I found out um, in like 1985, he had these pair of Jordan 1s. First pair of sneakers. They was called the band Jordan 1s. And 
they the NBA would ban him for wearing them, and he was getting a fine, and he would just not change that up. And for me, I think sometimes you have to push the limit for people to start to respect for what you are and what you do, and that right there changed the game. But for me, who I always played like and who I wanted to be like was Allen Iverson. Um, his, his trial and tribulations with life and, you know, his love for the game, his emotional side for the game that he's not afraid to show, um, I'm a true fan of that. And just being that shorter guard, you know, people count you out and you got to count yourself in, I just love that dog in him. And I, I feel like I've always had that dog. And as you were growing up making your way through the ranks, how did your attachment to the game grow? Um, Really, it, it grew for me to be um, adventurous. Um, growing up in St. Paul, I mean, we had open gyms, but on the east side, it wasn't really dominant for basketball. So I would have to ride my bike all the way to um, the Frogtown area, the Rondo community. And then I would have to ride my bike to the north side of Minneapolis just to play true competition. And every day you never knew what you were going to get. And I remember sometimes going to those gyms and they're like, oh, you can't play. We don't know you. And you had to earn that keep. And after a while, they were like, oh, the St. Paul guys in here. Oh, the East Side kids in here. And it grew big on me for everywhere I go. I knew I had to represent something. You know, um, people see me, they see probably see the East Side. And, I, and I'm proud of that because the way that I carry it now, it's not all about um, gangbanging or not, it's like a guy took the passion for basketball and he's drilling it into other kids and they're, they're able to make something out of it. That is dedication to bike from St. Paul all the way to North Minneapolis yeah. just to play a game. It doesn't seem that far by vehicle or by car, but on a bike, I mean, not only do you have to show you up, I mean, it, it's a test of her and Indicative of your stamina too. Yeah, but I mean, you think about it. You go over there and you get beat a couple times. Determined to get over there the next day to try to show them that it's your turn to win. Uh, you'll forget how long it is. It'll turn pretty short, real quick, real soon. So in those days, you were running off pure adrenaline. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> and sugar. Adrenaline and sugar. You didn't have any sugar crashes on the court, did you? Nah, nah, not at all. That not would have been all. embarrassing. <laughs> So when did you attend high school? I know you went to Johnson, yep. that school with Vern Simmons, a historic program. When yep. were your playing days? Um, 2000 to, through 2004. Okay, so you played with the likes of Terry Cornier, if yep. I remember. Yeah, Who were some got, other guys? Uh, Terry Cornier, um, Walt, Walter Hangs, uh, may he rest in peace, he passed away. Um, Michi, Markey, Sal Simmons, um, Nick Redman, McGimby, um, I know I missed Sam, Sammy. Oh, that roster was so big. Um, who else am I missing? Uh, Woozy Woo. I mean, that was basically my whole family. Like, that, that team through that time was my family. How did they give you that family atmosphere? Um, well, it was kind of... I really gave him no choice. Um, <laughs> <What>? <laughs> I know you're thinking that, but uh, coming into Johnson, I promised Vern that I was going to um, make it to state before I leave. And my fight being at Johnson was a, a pretty rough one. Um, I was getting arrested at the beginning of every school year for like um, truancy and just stuff that uh, correlates with not checking in for being in foster care. Um, getting picked up for varsity freshman year, then dropped back down to freshman, getting picked up for JV, then dropped back down to J, I mean, picked up for uh, varsity, then dropped back down to JV because I wouldn't cut my hair. Just things people were doing was just poking at me. And I just, I knew that in order for me to get somewhere, it had to be more than just, we're a team. You know, I had to build this family corroboree and I didn't do it by myself. So all these cats, uh, me, Walter, um, Michi Markey, we would go out and eat and we would just talk about basketball and not just about, it wasn't about girls all the time. It wasn't about, and it, for me, you know, it was good to talk about basketball, but for me, it was, I knew I wasn't going to be alone because I knew when they left, I didn't have nowhere to go. So let's hang out as long as we possibly can. Or, and maybe I can sit on your back porch long enough that nobody knows that I'm going to sleep here and I get up for school in the morning, you know, so. How instrumental were they? I know the, your life path, 
has been on many different stops. How instrumental were your teammates, your high school teammates, in helping you maybe start the process of going in the direction you are now? Um, I'm glad you say that because, and I always, when I coach basketball, I always pick maybe three or four players on there that can transfer the information that you give to them to a player because sometimes as an adult, you can hear it, but to hear it from a peer is kind of a different level of strength. So sometimes I knew I was good enough to play and I would probably not play because I, I didn't cut my, like we had an issue with people cutting their hair and I didn't get to play because I wouldn't cut my hair. And just hearing my teammates like, D, we know you good enough, bro. Just stay with it, stay with it. You know, and it, it just became a backbone for me. So in some of the toughest times just at home, I ended up letting them know what I was going through. And I was able to cry to them fellas, man. And they just, they didn't judge, they embraced it. And even when we cracked jokes about it, it was a joke like, you know, we crack it, but you know, we, we got your back if, if it ever go bad like that. So, I mean, it, it created a lot of love a lot of love and I needed that at the time. And on top of that, you had Vern Simmons, mm -hmm. very mild-mannered guy, at least when I've covered Johnson games, <laughs> but for all those years, he kept getting those Johnson teams to state, had that undefeated run in 2010. Mm -hmm. How influential was he as a coach and how did he provide a mentor role to you? Um, okay, so for me, it was different. Um, I came in prejudging Vern Simmons because, like I said, my brother was my idol. And my brother and Vern Simmons really didn't see eye to eye, so I came in kind of prejudging. Um, and there was an assistant coach there named Willie Tyler, probably one of my greatest coaches ever. Um, and Willie was kind of like a basketball guy to me. He put stuff in perspective so I can pretty much understand. And even when he felt Vern wasn't doing things a certain way with me, he would like pretty much say, hey, Vern, man, this is not right. Or, you know, and as the time went on and I got closer to my senior year, Vern started understanding my liver situation more than just being a basketball player. And um, as an adult, we are really, really close now. Um, I see him from time to time. I had some, some health scares right now, so I haven't, we haven't contacted as much, but I'm always doing stuff just so he noticed that, you know, the time he spent, um, his family, you know, used to come to the games and cheer us on, feed us. I mean, I played with his, his youngest son. And even though I felt sometimes that I, I didn't get my fair shake with it, now being a coach, I understand. I understand the struggle. I understand the love. I understand the frustration, you know. So, um, Vern, Vern's an excellent player, man. I mean, um, well, he was an excellent player, but he's an excellent coach for for the kids that he coached at Johnson. Like he's the perfect person to sit in that type of situation. And what fascinated me, I didn't cover Johnson until after you had left, but I would frequently chat with his assistant, Colin Moore. He and I are good buddies. And he Absolutely. told me at Johnson, I imagine this was the same philosophy. The biggest game of the season was the next one on the calendar. He Absolutely. didn't believe in superstars. He didn't believe in putting one opponent over another. And I feel that contributed to that long run of success because Johnson brought out great athletes, but a sense of humility as well, where they were going to bring it every game. Absolutely. Um, for us, going, my years going into Johnson, especially 2000, Johnson was a dominant for football. Basketball wasn't that well. Um, and watching the older guys simmer out through the season, kind of giving out and understanding that there's one more game. We have football players playing, hockey players playing, and they're playing during, during their season because hockey is during basketball. And I'm just like, if they can do it every day and this is my sport, the next game we got to get this one, y'all. Next game we got to get this one. And it just started to snowball into a, a, um, a powerhouse. The community, it turned, because during that time there was a lot of killings, um, stealing, the community was just, like found hope in the basketball team. And when we made it to state senior year, that was the first time in 80 years. And we just created a culture now. Everybody wants to go to Johnson and really play basketball. And they knew they had something. Then I turn around and they get an undefeated season in state. And the first thing they do, hey D, y'all started this for us. You did this, bro, we knew we could. And just to hear that, you know, and to this day, I still look at, I look on the calendar. I know we got to play Johnson. It doesn't matter if they win or they lose. I said, oh, here they come. Cause I know it's that next game mentality. 
Well, you kept your promise. You kind of led into my next point, and that promise you kept, yeah. getting Johnson to state for the first time in 80 years, like you said, it started this train, and even though it's been a while since they last got to state, you know, they still bring it out, even with athletes that you may not put a lot of stuff right (laughs) athletes that you may not have much respect for you may not hold a lot of hold them in high regard they're still going to come out and play and i kind of wonder if they could get another couple of those dynamic players which is funny to say because again they don't believe in superstars you know they were kings of basketball i love covering johnson games absolutely in the saint paul city conference and speaking of rivalries in conference i mean they built a big one with central Yes, uh, actually that rivalry was with us as well. Um, two big people that they had, Cato, uh, which is a, a professional player. Well, he, he's a professional trainer now, but he was a professional player overseas. Uh, Eric Coleman, who's still a professional player overseas. Um, they had um, Benny Roberts. They had a stacked team. And if you knew in St. Paul Conference that you were gonna face somebody, it was going to be Central, and it was going to be Creighton. They still had Joe Maurer. They had Steve Sir. They had all these, um, Matt Cadwell, uh, Alex over there. So, um, and t- uh, Creighton wasn't really in our conference. It would matter as much as Central would because we see those guys as much. So they were big, big rivals for us, even though it was supposed to have been harder. <laughs> well, Creighton-Durham Hall, I think they started out in conference. Yeah, absolutely. When you... Yeah enrolled at Johnson and then they were voted out. I forget what happened, but they got moved to the Suburban East. But those are some stacked teams. And I think a lot of folks forget Joe Maurer was a standout basketball player on top of football and baseball. Absolutely, absolutely. On that note in the high school circuit, you're looking forward to those Central and Creighton-Durham Hall games. Who was your favorite player to go up against in your time as a player? Um, That's good. I would say I, um, it was actually my junior year, the year before, it was Como. Um, they had Andre Smith and Jamil Lott. And, um, I just love playing those guys. And then um, uh, another team that I truly respect, um, they were from Minneapolis when we played Henry. They had Lawrence McKenzie, and that team was just phenomenal. And you know, it's, it's, they had that same circumstance we had on the east side and the north side so i knew that they were bringing it every night so i couldn't wait to get to the twin city game to play them because i was like i'm going to earn my respect and i would think about all them times i had to bike from the east side to go play over north to earn my name now y'all got to play me in high school so yeah and just to illustrate the significance como park they got to state back in 03 i think they reached the semifinals and patrick henry they were coached by Larry McKenzie, who's now at Minneapolis North, and I think 2000 through 2003, they won four in a row, a streak that held up until De La Salle. So yeah. when you bring up these names, <laughs> it's not just any old section or conference rivals. These were legitimate yes. players. Yes, yes, and they earned it. It wasn't given to them. It was, they really earned it. They really earned that keep. Now, you had dreams, of course, of becoming a professional as well, but that took a detour toward the end of your high school career. So what took place and how hard was it to make that course correction? Um, I, I know it looks like a detour because ultimately our dream is to be exactly what we think we see. Um, but like I said, I, um, during high school, I ended up homeless. So for and um, my junior year, I ended up moving with my grandma, and she passed away. And um, I was lucky enough to meet a janitor that was able to let me sleep in his in the locker room. So I would sleep in the locker room, show up for school. And um, through that process, um, I ended up having to end up like later um, having a kid uh, at 17, and it ultimately changed my life for the better. Um, I, I started to think, I started to slow down, and um, I appreciate things no more, and, and more. And I told him to this day, my son is my hero because I, I'm truly blessed to think the way that I do because he's here. But I ended up um, graduating high school. Um, I went up to Central Lakes. Um, Coach Jim Russell ended up giving me the opportunity to play basketball out there. and. Um, 
I got a phone call saying that um, you better you should come you better come home or your son's gonna be in foster care. And I had already experienced that, and that was probably the most scariest thing for me to hear on the phone. I just dropped out of college right away. Um, I came home, you know, I I, I became a better father, um, and because I understood there were sacrifices I had to do. Um, and I got a phone call, there was an opportunity to play basketball at MCTC, they had an open run. Um, I went in there, they had some amazing players there. They had Floyd, um, Zero from North, um, and some other, some other players there. And I walked in there and they had uh, Pivik, Coach Pivik. And I was like, uh, do you mind if I'm running? He's like, can you play basketball? I said, who's your best guard? And he pointed at Zero and Floyd. I was like, all right. And I just went tunnel vision, and I was able to just lock in on those two players and earn my keep, and he said, you can stay. And we played a season there. We made it to Regions. Um, after that, um, I wasn't able, like I said, I was in foster care, and I was homeless, and I wasn't able to uh, get faster. So going to MCTC, I was paying out of pocket. And um, when it was time to come second year, I wasn't going to pay because there was no way to do it, not knowing I could have reapplied for a FAFSA at that time. Um, and I would go out to uh, South Dakota and visit a friend of mine. And one day he's like, yeah, man, there's good runs in this, in this gym. It's Augustina or whatever. And I'm like, all right. So I go in there, I fill out this form to, um, to play. Come to find out it was Sioux Falls uh, Sky Force, uh, the D League. I go in there, do my thing. You know, I'm, I'm getting noticed, get everything that I need, and I end up getting hurt. And I had to come back home. I uh, came back home, and then I started, I had to get a job, and it, that kind of crushed my dreams there. I, I kind of gave up after that, so. How frustrating was it to come so close where you had some chances to play, and then you know, things not necessarily in your control, certainly injuries, they oh. crop up, and like you said, forced you to maybe not so much a detour, but having to take a different direction, if you know what I mean. Yeah, um, well, the process leading up to the D-League tryout, um, I was kind of fine with that because my life always been like that. It's been in a shamble and I got to pick it up. And I always, I've always said this to this day, people, um, the things in my life should have made me a victim and I'm not a victim, I'm a survivor. So that's how I always looked at life. Um, but the D-League was a little different because it was my fault. Like we had already did our runs, we did the tryout and everything, and we were done. And then everybody just wanted to continue playing basketball just for the fun of it. And I got hurt during the fun of basketball. So it kind of beat me up. And that was the longest three hour drive, three and a half hour drive from South Dakota back to Minnesota, possible. But then I got home and I seen my kids and I was just like, I didn't know if I could sacrifice being gone anyway if I would have got picked up because I knew what it felt like to not have them parents around at that time. So you come back to Minnesota after your D-League tryout and how long did it take for you to get involved again in the sport and you know, from the time you got home to what you're doing now at Como Park and the Gibson Foundation, uh, how did you handle that interim? Um, it didn't take no time. Um, when you really love basketball basketball is life and it will always be life and like i tell you when i heard my brother dribbling that ball it was like a beat to me it's the same rhythm you get in your heart and you get that excitement every time so it's like it was hard for me to ever walk away from basketball came home i have my son everything you want something you gotta make a basket like everything was driven off of basketball um homeworks off of basketball so i mean i it's, as much as I was removed from it, I came back, got a job at a rec center, playing basketball. Um, but as far as the Gibson Foundation, it's really my life in a nutshell. Um, people always ask for what's your statement, what do your organization do? My organization pretty much to me does life. Um, I never really had a plan about anything in life, but I figured it out and I'm okay with kids coming with me and I not have a plan or they not have a plan, but we're gonna figure it out. And most of the time it's through basketball. And I've used basketball to be the carrot, even for kids that don't play basketball. It's exciting to watch, it's exciting to be a part of, it's exciting to coach, it's exciting to take the stats 
and you feel like you're part of something. So we got kids taking stats. We got kids that are doing training that's never played basketball. But, and I tell them, you're the best type of trainer because you don't have no extra emotion for yourself. It's for the person that you're teaching it. And I've just fell in love with that aspect of just dropping that seed and watching somebody pick it up and plant it somewhere else and all these trees are starting to grow in these little children. It's amazing to watch. When did you launch the Gibson Foundation and what are some of the obstacles of starting, you know, I presume it's a nonprofit? Yeah, yep, yep. Yeah, what are some of the hurdles, obstacles that you had to clear in order to make the Gibson Foundation a thing? Um, it uh, started in 2015. Um, I was blessed enough to run in a home and save the family of 10 from a, a fire. Mm -hmm. um, I think the quote you said was, uh, there was 10 going in, we came out with 11? Yeah, uh, I was blessed enough to come out with them. Um, I, I never imagined having a nonprofit, but uh, right after someone asked me, what are some of your dreams? And I told them acting, because I never got I still always had low self-esteem and I wanted to be somebody else. Um, and I wanted to run a rec center. And I was like, the word of uh, nonprofit foundation came up and I never understood what it was. I'm like, what is that? And she pretty much explained to me, that's where the recreation center is. You just don't have a building right away. I'm like, yeah, I want to do that. Um, and. Once we figured it out, you know, I got everything. I wanted to get all the legal stuff done. I got the legal stuff done. But to this day, from 2015 when I started to 2009, uh, no fundraising, no funders. It's all out of a, a honest nine to five check that I struggle along with trying to take care of my family. Miss um, uh, Pierce has been very, very, very helpful. Um, the family at Como that, that comes and support every time. Uh, Coach Lex has been amazing for drawing in the girls, even just for the Como culture. Um, she's came part of that and she's actually just become family. I just, I love Lex. Um, even when I'm just having them days, we just talk crazy to each other, but we know that similar understanding that we have to do something. So even when I turn around, I ain't got no money. I just get that drive. I get that energy off of them. So, I mean, the biggest struggle for me has been finance and just finding like a stable place to be. So right now we're at three different sites, um, Washington High School, Allerton, the library, and then a church of it uh, at St. Bernard's. And we're just making it work. And as long as I got to, as long as I'm breathing, I'm gonna continue to make it work, so. And even if you don't have the finances you would like to run this nonprofit at this point, how would you say the Gibson Foundation has grown from its launch date in 2015 to now? Um, off of love, I think a lot of people are now believing that this is genuine. It's not another opportunity for a person to poverty pimp these kids or to use the game of basketball for um, kind of per se a con. Because even when I was in basketball, it was people that would say they were training your parents that trust you would go to the trainer. He's just letting you shoot around for two hours, but he keeps the money. Like these kids are really seeing somebody's embedded and there's parents coming, there's teachers, there's principals. All these people are buying in just off of love. And I think that's what grew it. And the numbers are outstanding right now. And I haven't earned anything and they haven't had to pay anything. We're just here off of love. And I've been impressed with the guest list. I know I came in here a couple years ago to tape a few sessions, and I think Larry McKenzie was a featured guest, Leah B. Olson. So even if you don't have the finances, the, the support you're getting from notable names, folks you went up against, folks you've met, however you encountered them, you've got a lot of folks who believe in what you're doing. What does that mean for you where each summer you know, you get a chance to help these kids grow through basketball and then also have them interact with some of the biggest names locally in the sport. Absolutely. Um, I think for me to look back and think about everything that I've been through and everything that these kids are going through, I've always been able to keep a good taste. And I say this and I don't don't say it in um, 
a different context, but I say a good taste in a person's mouth because how you meet and how you greet a person and how you leave is how they will always remember you. Always remember you. So even being rivalry on the court, they knew that I was a good person genuinely. And to try to embed that in these kids nowadays, they starting to see how it pays off because in the front of the kids, we'll get to having a competitive conversation about basketball. Like, oh, you used to nudge me in the stomach. I'm like, man, I used to dunk on you, do that. But at the end, man, we'll go eat ice cream right after because it's a job, it's, it's a way of living. But the love was genuine when we left the court. On the court, it's a job. And that's the same way you got to treat life. You meet people and you leave something, a, a nice taste in your mouth. People always have to eat. And if it's something good, they're going to always do it, even if it breaks their diet. And they're going to come back for seconds. <laughs> Absolutely. So what are some of the drills and lesson plans, just some of the curriculum that takes place in the summer sessions? I saw a lot of kids coming in. Of course, you get to do some basketball scrimmages. What are some other activities you have these kids do to help them grow in the sport and beyond? Okay, so um, I'll start before we even touch a basketball. We ask most kids, three colleges you want to go to. And we just do research. What's your ACT score? None of them even knew what it was. I didn't know what it was when I was in high school. So we build up to that. Then um, instead of, and I know this is my foundation, I do know basketball, I can train. But like I say, for me to be where I am today, it took a lot of adults to put their hands on me, to touch me. It couldn't have been one person that I could say that just saved my life. I feel like it was a collective. So I've, I've always tried to bring someone in to run drills, a different person outside of me so that these kids learn how to uh, adapt to other adults. Um, so they're doing dribbling drills sometimes. They're doing um, passing drills sometimes. Sometimes they're just coaching younger kids. They come back and mentor. I got a younger group. I make them come back and mentor. Well, I don't make them, but they decide to come back and uh, mentor the younger group. So. Um, Dribbling and shooting is pretty much the easy part. You know, it's, it's life that's really learned out of basketball. That makes sense. They know the game, but there are other aspects that they might, may not be prepared for. I mean, it's startling, for example, that they didn't know what an ACT score was, because I remember going in high school, they stressed that all the time. I went to Harding, and you heard ACT testing all the time, and you know, that was your prerequisite to get into college. And so what you're doing to help prepare them for all the other things because for a lot of these kids, you know, basketball, it's a vessel, but it's going to be with them for so long, and it should be a complement or a supplement for a lot of folks, knowing that it's fun to be a part of, but there will come a point where you'll go into something else, and it seems like what you're doing is helping them understand and prepare for that moment when they have to make that transition. Absolutely. Um we're pretty much taught when you're playing basketball to play in the game of basketball. And I think people forget that there's a person inside of the game of basketball. So I try to reach each person individually and let the person see who they really are and understand who they are. And now you sell yourself in basketball, sell yourself to the world and don't sell yourself short. You get one shot and it may be the game winning shot it may be the one that you miss and you learn from. So when you get that next opportunity, you're able to make that shot again. So, How long have you been hosting these summer sessions? Um, every summer from 2015. Okay, so you've been doing this from the start. Yep. What kind of response have you received from the local teenagers that come in and take part in these summer curriculum programs? Um, so the response has been amazing, but I remember sometimes forgetting that kids were spending so much money for AAU that I expected them to be here every night. <laughs> and I expected them to be here every night because it was free and it was because it was full of love and it was because of, and I had to remember that I can't always make decisions for them. I needed to hear them. So I remember sometimes showing up, having a gym full of adults and maybe two kids. And I said, we're not gonna waste this time. We're gonna get 100 shots up a piece. And that means we're making 100 shots a piece. So we run the drills then. And after I started getting feedback about, yeah, you know, these are days we have AU and this is when the season starts and this is when traveling more. And 
asking around, like, you know, because I went down to the, the sheriff's, well, not the sheriff's, the police station to find a database to see what was the, the worst time period that kids are getting killed, arrested, or, you know, put in any type of circumstance. And it was from the time of six to eight o'clock. So I made sure there was a place for them to be from six to eight o'clock. So just taking the information from the community and the information from the kids, that's been pretty much the biggest feedback to make this thing grow as big as it is now. So a lot of trial by fire with this program, and they say you're never too old to stop learning, and you've done a lot of that in these last four years. Now, I know a lot of Como Park kids come in. I think I saw some of the girls check out your sessions. How many kids do you draw from in terms of number of schools? Oh my, right now, uh, uh, right now we have a session going on right now. Um, and as you were sitting here, I know you heard them, we got Central. Um, we got Como, Johnson, De La Salle. Um, I got a couple of, um, which they just run straight, Mini Ha Ha Academy. Yep. A couple of those guys are in there. Um, some North Poles in there. Uh, who else am I missing? Washington, because I'm using their building. So um, I, I, I pretty, yeah, I pretty much get them from all over. And um, they love it. They love to be able to come in the gym seeing people from other schools and it be healthy and it's safe and it's all competitive and it's all what kids need. Um, I had a conversation with a kid and I was telling, asking him, what do you think they're missing? And he said, I don't know. And then I kind of asked him, I said, do you feel like every situation you're in, people are telling you what you need to do, even in basketball? And he said, you know, you're white. And I said, that's because I feel like they don't get that chance to have the opportunity to still be creative. So in that space, there's nobody really coaching them. They're coaching themselves. And you see them start to figure out what we've been teaching them for so long. It started to trickle down. Oh, that little guy's on my team, but he haven't been able to shoot the ball a little bit. Come here, come here, come here. Give him the ball, he gets the shot. And that's being a mentor, just that a little bit of time, they figured it out, so. So all across the Metro, and I know in this era of AAU and high school, everybody knows everybody. And I guess <laughs> yeah. you get a little taste of that here too, with yeah. all the kids that come in. Yes, yes. Now you mentioned your work with Christy Pierce and how instrumental she has been in helping this foundation progress in its mission. When did you two meet and how long did it take for her to get on board with what you're trying to do? Um, I met her working middle school at Battle Creek uh, Middle School. Uh, I was a TA for EBD students and... What does EBD stand for? Uh, emotional Behavior Disorder. Okay. Um, and I would kind of get trouble because I would draw kids from every program. Um, we had uh, DCD kids, which are kids that are like autistic. And um, we had kids that were in behavior. And then we had the mainstream kids that didn't have a label. Um, which if you erase all the labels, the kids are just our kids. So I would constantly get called in the office and I'm like, you can fire me, but I'm not picking and choosing which kids I love. I'm gonna be here for all these kids. So if they need me to come to, come to. And Ms. Pierce was like one of the first people to really step up and say, I back him on that. And from there on out, it's just, we just had this bond that we knew that the work we were doing is for kids. And even if we have arguments, it's not about what she believes, what I believe, it's about the kid. It's always about the betterment of the kid, so. Arguing about kids, so you're kind of uh, a weird uh, couple in your own way with where kids being the subject. It's kind of amusing, but at the same time, it's cool that you know, she saw what you were doing and said, you know, whether we agree or disagree, I'm gonna support you. Absolutely. And how was that? dynamic, how has that symbiotic bond, how has that grown in the time that you, you two have helped with this foundation? Um, honestly, I'll be very frank, is it was new to me. Um, I've always, like I said, I've always been in a situation where people come in my life and leave. And sometimes I was so used to people leaving, I was pushing people out. Even in relationships I was in, I was finding a way to mess it up, you know? and. For some reason, I can't push her out. And she understand that, that that's just a thing with me trying my protective system is sometimes when I get frustrated, I just want to push people away 
because I want to know if you're real. And she's always been there. So. So hard to get rid of, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like you're thankful for that. Yeah, I'm very grateful. <laughs> yes, I'm very grateful. And so what role does she play when you do these sessions? I know she does a lot of the coordination. Uh, what are some of the other things that she does to help this foundation run as smoothly as it does? Um, Alexa tell you, uh, Coach Lex, that is, she'll tell you that Miss Pierce is probably a walking calendar um, when it comes to planning, um, wording things, um, putting adults that actually care about kids, she fills them out, she understands them, and she always seems to put the right puzzle piece inside of our sessions, inside of our, our mediations. Um, even just having, and she's older than me, she's older than Lex, but just having that, that sprinkled bit of, of wisdom that me and Lex can't have because we haven't experienced as much, she's been able to step in and just be like, look, y'all, let me give you two cents of what life was like before y'all think y'all knew what life was like. <laughs> well, in a way, stop me if I'm not making sense. Uh, Christy, for you, is almost like the mother you never had. <laughs> absolutely, <Okay>. absolutely. <laughs> and, of course, your work with the Gibson Foundation is well known around here. And as you mentioned earlier, you also coach at Como Park now yep. with the boys team. How did you get involved as a coach and what has that done for you to enhance your experience of the sport and these kids that you get to work with? Okay, so when I came home um, from uh, the D-League and I got hurt, I ended up working at a rec center, which is uh, Oxford Community Center, excuse me. That's where Jimmy Lee- Yeah, Jimmy that, Lee, that, Oxford Community yep, Center, yep. They're together. Yep. Um, I asked, um, my, my boss, which was uh, Victor Mister, which is, um, was my boss at the time, I said, can I coach a team? And he was like, yeah, you can take 8U. So if you would think of all the names that I had 8U, they're all dominant players right now. Trey Holloman, <laughs> um, Dwayne Givens from Johnson. Like I had some big name kids and they were already pretty good. And to know that I was able to to have a group of kids and they respect me and they love the game just as much as I did. I just continued to bite knowledge. I'm, uh, well, I was new to the internet because our gay age group didn't have the internet. So I was right, new, no I was, social media. Yeah. I think so MySpace I was, was just coming out. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Same with Facebook, YouTube, yep. Twitter, they were still in the preliminary absolutely. stages. Yep. So, so go ahead. Um, what I would do is I would go to the library at MCTC and um, they would have playbooks. And then they would have old coaches that would talk about their experiences. And um, I will always try to implement stuff that I have read about. And I ended up getting hired in uh, uh, Como from Battle Creek. And I ran into John Robinson and he was in the hallway. I'm like, what's up coach? Um, and that's one thing we do in St. Paul. We know you coach a sport, everybody's coach. So I was like, what's up coach? And he's like, man, yeah, you know, I'm kind of, my, my freshman coach just backed out on me. I was like, I can do it. And he gave me the opportunity to coach. Um, so my freshman year, we did pretty well. We made it two games away from, um, from Twin Cities. Um, I got moved up the next year to JV um, for, I want to say two or three years. We made it one game away from the state. I mean, one, one game away from Twin Cities which is big in St. Paul to even get to Twin Cities for us. Oh yeah, I've um, seen the crowds yeah, for yeah. some of those games. Um, and just to come up short every year, it was just like, ah, I felt like I was at Johnson again, like the next game, it's the next game, you know? <laughs> um, and the past, the past year, uh, you know, I, I ended up with a medical condition that I didn't know that I had and I missed the beginning of the season. So I ended up being an assistant coach. I've never been an assistant coach. So I didn't know how. And the reason I say I don't know how is because to be an assistant coach for somebody that's already been a head coach for so long, it has to be a well-oiled machine. You have to know when to insert, you have to know when to kind of take the back seat. You gotta know when to step up and say, coach, let me. And I was kind of struggling with that piece. And I was struggling with the fact that I felt out of place because I never did it. And I was freshly off my, um, my um, hospital stint. So 
I didn't know my body anymore. I was relearning my body. Um, I couldn't even really read anymore yet. Uh, my, my mind wasn't comprehending things. So um, I was really struggling with that role. And he just recently set, stepped down and um, I got put in a weird situation now. Um, I, they offered me the job and then they kind of took it back because they wanted to clear house of what the normal, the original program was. But then they asked me again, like, uh, would you mind working with somebody? And me being a team player, I'm like, yes. I didn't even know what it was when they asked me. And that's what my grandma tell me, know what you're saying yes to. Um, but they offered me to be associates coaching with another coach that was coming in. And uh, it was frustrating once I thought about it because I, I didn't imagine being, going through freshman all the way up and then getting dropped down and letting someone else come in. Um, but I, it took me a while to just sit there and imagine, am I really practicing what I teach? If I tell these kids that when something don't go your way, you walk away from it. And I just had to face that reality and I did what I normally do. I went in the mirror, I played the role of somebody else. And I said, is this truly who you are? Are you, you really talking to these kids? Are you really saying what you mean? Or are you just talking to them? And then I just said, fine, I'm on board. So I'll be learning how to be a, a associate, associate's coach, so. At Como Park, At correct? Como Park, yes. Just wanted to be clear yes. on that. Sorry about that. No, that's fine. Uh, just so folks who want to see what you're up to or support you can find you. Yes. So what are you excited about with this opportunity to be part of the coaching staff for the varsity team? Um, I'm excited to First off, show people that being in tough situations is actually who I am. And this is gonna be a very tough situation. Um, it's gonna be a situation where you have to figure out another adult's ego. Um, and along with the fact that I felt like I should have got it. So, you know, and it, I'm excited. I just like challenges. and to watch the kids that's coming next year and to know that they got to get ready for a new adventure and I can honestly say, hey, this is new for me too and we're going to take this ride together. I I'm super excited for that. Yeah, that could be a bonding moment from the very first practice. Absolutely. Like, we're all in this together, so let's take chances, make mistakes, as Miss Frizzle used to say in the Magic <laughs> School Bus. <laughs> and how do you think you work with the Gibson Foundation you know, you've had an opportunity to mentor a lot of inner city athletes. How does that help you in the coaching realm? Once, once a kid delivers a piece of information, other kids are drawn to it. And they're drawn to two things. They're drawn to curiosity of, if, are you saying the truth about this? And curiosity to, I'm trying to see what's really wrong with it. So kids are going to come and they're going to see why kids are coming. And then once they come in, they're going to fall in love with what I'm, I have to offer. But being a part of the Gibson Foundation, kids are coming in and they're just seeing a smile sometimes. Sometimes kids are not used to smile or um, positive relationships. So it's being able to help like, oh, you coach and you I kind of want to go where you're going. I, where, where you coach at? And it's always been good for me that way. And even like now, um, we haven't been able to really do any summer things with the Como basketball team because we really don't have a team. Um, all the contacts got erased, it, everything got erased it, and me and the coach have to build up and I had to tell them is right now it's just off of relationships. It's just like the first time a team makes an AAU team. They don't come in and have everybody. You have to fill out and they have to learn what type of AAU team you are. Right now they got to figure out what we have working and they got to buy into it. And having that clean slate allows you to kind of put in your own input and creativity and you get to build it absolutely. the way you want to as opposed to trying to conform to the prior system. Absolutely, absolutely. So you mentioned you're the father of two. How old are your kids now? Well, I'm a father of four. Four, okay. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, so I, I, I shortchanged <laughs> you there. Yeah, um, I, um, my oldest is 19. Um, I have a 15-year-old, an 11-year-old, and a 9-year-old. So are we going to see them in the basketball court? Have they taken up 
Uh, they yeah. Follow their father's uh, route. Yep. My son was just in, in Baylor, uh, one of the top uh, Chicago shootout tournaments out there. Uh, he broke his leg, though. Um, and my daughter just made nationals in Tennessee for um, also a, a Minnesota native, uh, Taylor Hill. She plays for her elite uh, traveling team, so with her uh, brother, Paul Hill Jr. So, yeah, they, they're into basketball. But my youngest, she's a gymnast, so. <laughs> well, give it time. I've met some players who started out in gymnastics and took up basketball. Absolutely. So I know your oldest son has graduated. And yep. So your second, that's your 15-year-old daughter, right? No, that's my 15-year-old son, 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 yeah, son, and my 11-year-old so, daughter, yep. Okay, so so there's at least three more Gibsons that we can look forward to, We, I presume? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. How cool is it for you as a father to, you know, whether they take up your sport basketball or in the case of your youngest gymnastics, that, like you said, you wanted to forge a different path for them than what you had growing up. How cool is that to see them, you know, follow your footsteps in basketball or try out some activities like your youngest who is in gymnastics? Um, for me, it was, it's, it's exciting. Um, and like even with my daughter, she didn't play basketball right away. She played soccer um, and she played tackle football. <laughs> um, and she <laughs> the actually- The Vixen might be looking for, <laughs> the Minnesota Vixen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she's actually, she was actually excelling in both. And then just one day she said oh, she wanted to try basketball. Um, but I will say the rule that, our is, that is in our house is if you're going to play anything, you're going to play it for real. And I just love their dedication to anything that they learn. And like, it's just second to none. They're eating dinner and they're talking about whatever they just learned. And it's always the, the hunger to, to do more and to be better. And I just love that. It's something I know you didn't have a lot of growing up yourself. So what does it mean for you to provide that platform where you can have your kids eat dinner together, go at it 110%. Sounds like you won't take anything less when it comes to athletics and provide that building block for them to be the next generation of leaders. Um, as it, weird, weird as my life has been, I'd say my mom and my dad installed that in me. Um, even at our worst time, even when you're in the system, even when they're incarcerated, even they're, if they're on drugs, they know the importance of love and they, they talk to you about it and they try to explain it to you. And like I say, curiosity always gets you. And so you're listening to that information as much as possible. So when you get your chance, you get your golden moment, you take it. So they've always told me what love felt like and what, and, and what eating at dinner should feel like and all of that. And I had my, my chance to do it and I capitalized on it. And throughout your life, perseverance has been a huge part of it. You know, whether it was growing up as a kid at Johnson, you know, saving 10 people from a fire four years ago and then recovering from a medical condition where it took a toll on you. Absolutely. With your life story, your experience, what could you relate to others about the ideal of perseverance? Be ready for your big shot. Um, I remember watching a college game the other, uh, a couple years ago, and they were going back and forth, and one guy just kept missing his shot. And it came down to a fumble, he picks it up, shoots it, and kind of already put his head down and went in. And the disbelief in him letting that shot go and the belief in his teammates to stand there and no one chase the rebound was that I see the work ethic he put up before that shot, his teammates noticed that. And I feel like that's what I feel like that's what I want to give to the world, and I feel like that's what they should take from me. I feel like be ready for that big shot. You never know if the ball's going to hit your hand right. You never even know if you're on the game. You might be the one just yelling at the next person, take the shot. So I just want to be able to have people understand that you may not be the big shot, but be ready for it. Now, if you can recount your playing days again, what was your most exciting moment as a player and what was your most embarrassing moment? Um, 
My most embarrassing moment was we were playing freshman year. We were playing against um, playing against Central, and I had 33 points, and Eric Coleman had 35. And we were down to 12 seconds. I did a little hesitation at the top of the key, and I full dash to the hole, try to get a finger roll. And I didn't see anybody, and I was already kind of being cocky like, and Eric comes out of nowhere, and he like Sunset Park blocks it to the stands. Horn goes off, and then he looks at me and said, you ain't get 35 yet. And I just never, I just inbox him about that. Like, dude, I'll never forget, like he blocked it. Like, that was crazy to me. Um, and one of my, my greatest moments was, um, we made it to state. I mean, I had some good games, um, but particularly we made it to state. And um, I had a disagreement with my coach, Vern Simmons, in the locker room before that. So I got minimal playing time. Um, I was already kind of frustrated being a senior and having to sit the bench that game. Uh, we played in Chaska, which we got destroyed. Um, and he was letting his son, and me being a, a young man understanding that not understanding, but I'm like, oh, you trying to just play your son, da da da, you know, as any kid would. Um, but my biggest moment was out of that was like, I watched, I watched the film now, and I watched my body language. I let the coach take me out the game. I let my own coach take me out the game. But by the second half, the commentators was like, oh, this Gibson kid's amazing. He's Allen Iverson. And to this day, I hear that, and I was like, I actually walked in the steps of my idol. I will go down, and people remember, there was a guy from Minnesota that was just like Allen Iverson. And for me, that, that sparked something in me. It's like I hadn't been running in practice for no reason. I hadn't been driving, riding my bike to the north side for no reason. You know, I was chasing the Allen Iverson dream, and, and at that moment, even us getting killed by like 20, they were able to call with that diamond out of rough, like, hey, that's Allen Iverson right there. So, yeah. And in a strange way, I think uh, that lesson of yours also an importance about body language. <laughs> and I'm sure, I'm sure you relay that to everyone who takes part in your Absolutely. summer camps and coaching because, like you said, you never know when you're going to get called up or when that opportunity is going to come your way. And Absolutely. Most of the time it just falls into you. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't seek it out. It just comes to you. So. Kind of a funny story, but that is cool that, you know, even for one moment, uh, you got that comparison. Absolutely. <laughs> so uh, all that practice was worth it. <laughs> so when you talk about practice at your high school games, it's like, hey. Right. I should it's do like, it like Allen Iverson did it. Practice? Practice? <laughs> well, I don't think you would because you see, you're the guy, like you said, you tell your kids go out at 100, 110%. So Absolutely. that means going to practice and working as hard as in practice as you would in games. So True. I True. don't think you're going to be like AI in that regard because <laughs> you value practice no matter what. <laughs> yep. So if people want to support the Gibson Foundation, where can they go to? Um, www.thegibsonfoundation.org. Um, yeah, that's, that's probably the best way. Or they can uh, reach me on Facebook or Instagram. Um, D-N-E-L-L-N-Y-C-E. Um, which is D-Nail Nice uh, at Instagram or either Facebook, so. And what goals do you have for this foundation as it continues its growth and evolution? What would you like to see this foundation do for the Twin Cities community? Um, for me, I would like to see it bring a more community in. Um, I know I'm at probably almost 200 kids, um, probably 50 adults. I wanna double that, I wanna triple that. And I want to be able to create a, a place where one resource is able, I mean, there's a place where a whole family can get all the resources they need in one space. Um, if the, the son need help with court things, he can come there. The mom need help with living things, they can come there. I just want one space um, to, for them, like a one-stop shop for them. That's what, I, that's what I envision. And as you alluded to earlier, all it takes is a seed, and you see how that seed has grown in four years. I'm excited to see how it will continue to grow in the next four years, you know, if you stick around. And I've got a feeling you will, but, you know, hey, someone else might come in, and you know, who knows, a lot of opportunities for growth with this organization. And this is a highly enlightening conversation, and I think 
a great takeaway on perseverance. There's no one right way to make a difference in the community and I think you're an embodiment of that and I'm glad you took the time to share some of those insights with us. I appreciate you. Um, I was looking in the sports world and, and understanding that there's a more in-depth meaning in basketball sports as well and knowing that there's some people behind the scenes that are not getting this notice as much. So I appreciate you finding me. And that will do it for this episode of Miked Up Sports. And if you want to be a guest on a future episode, you can contact us at tsbtelevision at gmail.com. You don't have to be an A-lister. You just have to have a good story, a background in sports. We'd love to hear from you. Until then, I'm Mike Beaton. Thanks for watching. If you'd like to support TSB Television programming, check us out on Patreon, PayPal, or Cash App. And thanks for watching Miked Up Sports, the home game.